you have your Bible, please uh, turn with me to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. I'll be looking at verses 13 through 17 this morning. We were, we were right smack in the middle of our uh, short series that we're doing before we start our fall series, which will start the week after Labor Day on the book of Judges. We're going to move to the Old Testament for the fall. And in the in-between time, we've been doing a short series titled The Kind of Church We Want to Be. We've mentioned the fact that if we you want to be healthy and uh, growing in a stable uh, organization or a church, then you've got to know who you are. And then we've started naming who we are, so to speak, in the last couple of weeks, and we'll do that this week and next, and then we'll move to Judges. Uh, last week, we talked about we want to be a place of the book. We want to be a place of the Word. Why? Well, because the Bible is where God speaks to us. The Bible uh, is the Word of God, and so we want everything we do from top to bottom in our church to flow out of the Bible. This week, we're going to look at um, being a place of grace. We also want to be a place of grace here at Faith Church, and so that's going to be the focus of our time together uh, this morning, and to do that, we're going to look at Mark 2, 13 through 17. Uh, This is God's Word. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is God's word. Let me pray and give uh, thanks for God's word, but also to ask the Spirit to come and to help us with this passage. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you uh, for your word, that it is useful for teaching, correcting, and rebuking, and training in all righteousness. And we pray that you would do all of those things in our hearts uh, this morning. Uh, We come from lots of different places in this room. Uh, And we really need you. Some of us this morning feel like we've lost our edge spiritually. And we feel like our hearts have grown cold towards you. Others feel like failures wondering if you still care. Some of us are angry because life hasn't turned out the way we wanted it to or the way we thought it would. Others are full of shame. uh, Maybe for even the way we have spoken to our spouse or children, even this very morning on the way to church. And so we really need your help. Would you come this morning and convince us that we're a bigger mess than we know, but at the very same time convince us that you don't run away from our mess, but you actually come and you enter in. We really need a word from the outside this morning, and so come and teach us and show us the goodness of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, There's a TV show, many of you have probably seen it. It's one of those food shows called Parts Unknown. The host is 
a guy by the name the late Anthony Bourdain. He's passed away tragically this summer, uh, but he's a famous author and he's a professional eater. <laughs> he travels around the world uh, eating food and making a show out of it. And in this one particular episode, he goes to Charleston, South Carolina. We've got family. Susie's got family in Charleston. And so the episode was interesting. And he sits down with this uh, award-winning chef named Sean Brock. Sean Brock is the founder of the restaurant called Husk. And as they're talking about food, it is revealed that Anthony Bourdain, this professional eater, has never eaten at Waffle House. (laughs) And so Sean Brock... A famous chef says, everyone has to eat at Waffle House at least once in their life, and we're going right now. And so you've got this professional eater, this award-winning chef, famous author, and Sean Brock bellied up to the bar at Waffle House. And Anthony Bourdain is looking at the menu, and he's thinking, what in the world is this? It was so confusing to him, especially the hash browns. And so, uh, John Brock decides to take over and to order a sampler, sampler of sorts. And so they order a little bit of everything on that menu, and it ends up being five courses that they share. They start with the pecan waffle. They next move to the second course, which is the patty melt. And then I have no idea why this is third, but the green salad with Thousand Island dressing. Fourth, they do pork chops and T-bone steaks. And they finish up their meal with fried eggs and hash browns, covered, smothered, and smattered, and whatever else they do to the hash browns. And the scene, it's an amazing scene, as the camera comes in to the scene of the Waffle House, and you can see the outside of the Waffle House, Anthony Bourdain in a pre-recorded monologue Um, says this, to set up the Waffle House scene. Waffle House is indeed marvelous. It's an irony-free zone where everyone is beautiful and nothing hurts. Where everybody, regardless of race, creed, color, is welcomed. Its warm yellow glow is a beacon of hope and salvation to all. Inviting the hungry and the lost to a place of safety and nourishment Waffle House, it never closes. It's always faithful. It's always there for, me, for you. <laughs> that is amazing. That's his experience of Waffle House. But I want you to think about that. What he experiences at Waffle House, isn't that what every single one of us wants this morning? Don't you want to be a part of a place that's an irony-free zone? Where all are welcomed and nourished and warmed and spiritually fed. In other words, don't we all want to be a part of a place of grace? You want to belong to a place where when you walk in the doors, it doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been or what you're struggling with, that you are welcomed in the name of Jesus. And that when someone looks at you, they want to hang out with you and spend time with you. A place of grace. A place of belonging. That's what we want to be at Faith Church. What does that look like? Well, we're going to see in this passage that a place of grace is a place of, that is welcoming, number one. Secondly, it's a place of celebration. 
And thirdly, it is a place that heals. So it's a healing place. So welcoming, celebration, and healing are our three points this morning. Let's look at number one, a welcoming place. Look at verses 15 and 16. Anytime you're looking and reading and studying your Bibles and you see something mentioned three times in two verses, you better pay attention. Because that means the author is trying to tell us something and communicate something to us very important. What do you see mentioned three times in two verses? Well, you see the fact that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors mentioned three times in two verses. Why in the world is Mark making such a big deal out of this? Well, simply put, Jesus is eating with the wrong kinds of people. Jesus is eating with the wrong kinds of people. And we've got to understand, to really understand this passage, we've got to understand who Levi actually was. Levi was a tax collector, and he was hated in his society, bottom of the barrel. He was considered a moral untouchable. You see, the tax collectors were despised because they were Jews who had sold out to the Roman government in order to collect huge taxes off of their own people. Not only that, it was uh, commonly understood that tax collectors would always charge more than was necessary so that they could pad their pockets, they could skim a little bit off the top and make money off of their own people. And so tax collectors were despised because they had betrayed their own people for their own private interest. They were social outcasts. They were classed together with robbers and murderers and included in Jewish law as beasts unclean. Get the picture? That's the tax collectors. But there's also another group here called sinners. And that was a technical term to really designate an entire group of people who didn't really care about the Pharisees and all of their rules. And they were considered the outcast of the day. They were people who weren't good enough. And that is who Jesus is hanging with. And I think it's pretty interesting because we want to hang out at the invitation-only party. We want to hang out and have dinner with the movers and shakers. We want to hang out with the people that are in the inner ring that are going to have the right connection so that we can get connected to the right people. And the beautiful thing about Jesus in Christianity is Jesus is throwing a party and hosting a party for the people that didn't get invited to any other party. Jesus is throwing a party for the people who aren't doing it right. For the people who aren't connected enough and rich enough and pretty enough and the people who have blown it morally. That's who Jesus is hanging out with. Those are the people that he is feasting with. And what we see in Mark chapter 2 is the kind of church that Jesus came to create. He came to create a place of abounding grace. And here's the question, is what will make faith church this kind of place? If that's who we want to be, how does that actually begin to happen? And there's lots of things and directions I could go at this point, but I'm going to focus in on one. And here it is. Here's what's going to make us that kind of place, or one thing that will help make us a place of grace. We must begin to see people differently. We've got to start seeing people differently. Let me try to illustrate. In his book, Stephen Covey and 
his famous book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he tells this well-known story, you might have heard it at some point, of when he was on a subway ride on Sunday morning in New York City. And the subway in Sunday morning in New York City, this particular car he was in, uh, was very peaceful. People were reading their newspaper, paper. People were dozing off to sleep. Uh, people were just uh, riding quietly. And then all of a sudden, the car stops, and on gets an, a man with his children. Well, that peaceful scene turned to mass chaos. The man sat down to Stephen Covey, puts his head back and dozes off to sleep and closes his eyes, or what appears to be uh, falling asleep. And he's oblivious to his children who are yelling, screaming, throwing things, grabbing the paper from people's faces so that they couldn't read it. He couldn't believe it. Covey couldn't believe how insensitive this man was being. And so finally he decided to do something about it. And he said, sir... Your children are being very disruptive. Your children are disturbing everyone in this subway car. And I wonder if you couldn't gain some sort of control over them. And the man lifted up his gaze and he was as as if he was seeing the situation for the first time. And he looked at Covey and he said, oh, you're right. I am so sorry. I guess I should do something about that. But I just came from the hospital where these children just lost, lost their mother an hour ago. I have no idea what to feel or what to do, and I guess they don't really know either. And listen to what Cubby says. Suddenly I saw things differently. And because I saw differently, I felt differently. And I behaved differently, and my irritation vanished. I didn't have to worry about my... my about controlling my attitude or my behavior, my heart suddenly filled with compassion. And I said, oh, your wife died. I am so sorry. Can you tell me more about that? What can I do to help? You see, we're really good. Myself included always. We're really good at making snap judgments about people, aren't we? But here's what I want you to see. Everybody's got a story. Everybody's got a story. When you look around in this room this morning, we look really pretty and put together on the inside, but oftentimes on the inside, people are broken and hurting and filled with pain. And when we stop long enough to hear someone's story, it totally changes the way we see people, doesn't it? Think about that in your own life. You know this is true. When you hear the story, you're finally able to say, oh, I get it. I understand now why they're struggling in the way they're struggling. And it causes us to move from judgment towards compassion. Because you see, when we slow down enough, To actually hear someone's story, we discover, students, that the blue-haired student in your school that you condemn has never met his dad. Or when we slow down enough to enter into someone's life, you understand that the foul-mouthed neighbor that you cannot stand and despise was brutally beaten as a child. Or maybe you start to realize and discover that the self-righteous church member that you want nothing to do with 
lost a child years ago and they've never gotten over it. Or maybe you start to understand that the coworker that you condemned for sleeping around has never heard the words, I love you. A place of grace. A place of grace means that we start to see people differently. And you start to see people differently when you take the time to hear their story. And maybe when we hear their story, we will move from com- towards them with compassion rather than looking down in judgment. Secondly, celebration. A place of grace is a place of celebration. Uh, you know this about me by now, but I love to point out the obvious things about a passage because sometimes we miss the really obvious things, and I think they're worth noting. And there's one thing that's really obvious that's just worth drawing your attention to, and it's really simple, but Jesus was invited to this party. Jesus was invited to the party. Notice Jesus didn't always, and somehow I think we get this picture that Jesus was... sat home all the time reading and studying his Bible or reading something or having deep spiritual conversations or whatever it might be. But Jesus was actually at the party. He was invited to the party. And if you read the Gospels, Jesus spent a lot of time with people at dinner parties. Luke chapter 5, verse 33. You remember uh, the Pharisees go up to uh, Jesus, and they're like, John's disciples are way more, John the Baptist's disciples are way more spiritual than you. They fast and pray, and all your disciples do are uh, eat and drink. You know, in Luke 7, he's accused of being a drunkard and a glutton because of the time he hung out at dinner parties with tax collectors and sinners. And I say that to say that, yes, there's more involved in Jesus' missionary strategy and mission strategy is coming into the world, but a big part of that strategy was going to dinner parties with sinners like tax and tax collectors and hanging out with people who weren't doing it right. You see it everywhere. You think about John chapter 2. The very first miracle that John introduces us to Jesus is at a wedding. That's not by accident. He could have picked any miracle to introduce us to the ministry of Jesus, but he picks a wedding. And Jesus, contrary to what we think, we think that he went to the uh, wedding to do the miracle. No, the miracle popped up after he was there. He went to the wedding because he was invited (laughs) and because he wanted to have fun. And why do I say that? I say that because I think Uh, Again, Jesus, 100% human and 100% man, we oftentimes over-spiritualize the human side of Jesus and Christianity, and we make Jesus out to be this really weird guy that cannot relate to a single person. (laughs) But Jesus here, think about this in this passage. Friends, I, I think you can make a strong argument that Jesus showed up at places that you and I wouldn't dare be seen at. That we wouldn't dare be caught at a party like Jesus is in chapter 2. And I say all of that to say Jesus is not a social killjoy. That he's shockingly 100% normal and 100% human. And you and I would have wanted to hang out with him. And Jesus, we people that aren't Christians look in and say, Jesus comes in and the way we talk about Jesus and he shuts down the party. No, Jesus breathes life into the party. 
And the point is that Jesus came into the world to bring festive joy. Jesus came into the world to bring celebration. And we think that our faith actually gets in the way of happiness and joy. And that's why lots of Christians are miserable and unhappy and have no joy in their life. And I think we could say that if you, if there's not a note of festive joy and celebration in your life, then you've missed something about the gospel. Then you've missed something about Jesus. And so what in the world does that have to do with faith church? Well, we want to be a place where people have fun. We want to be a place of joy and celebration. Think about the Old Testament. We could make the argument there too. Jesus or God commanded his people to carve out times during the year, lots of them. Think about all the feasts. And what were they to do? Celebrate. And spend time with, time with one another, celebrating the goodness of God to them. And you know, that's one of the reasons why we did the food truck festival. Faith Food Truck Fest, right back here. No program. No agenda. We just wanted to gather together and celebrate and have festive joy and eat lots of bacon and barbecue. That's one, of the re- that's one of the reasons why we did that. We want to get us together and celebrate and, and, and be together and enjoy the goodness of what God's done to us. And it's why every... Uh, you would not believe how often people tell me that the Thanksgiving service here at our church is their favorite service of the year. For the Thanksgiving feast, we move out all of these chairs and we put all the tables in here and the whole church gets in this room, believe it or not, and we feast. We eat. And we hang out together and we laugh and we, people stand up and they tell stories about how God has been good to them. There's a reason why that's your favorite service of the year because joy and celebration taps in deep into who you are as a Christian. And it's something you were meant to do. But I think also a place of celebration involves us celebrating one another. Think about the power when someone celebrates you. I don't care how old you are in, in this room uh, this morning. Uh, you look forward to your birthday. <laughs> Why? Because all eyes are on you and people celebrate you. What does that mean for Faith Church? We want to be a place where young and old, when you come into this place, people are excited to see you. People are excited that you're here. We want to be a place that is for one another. A place where... Everyone belongs. Think about how that would change our community if the instinct was for you to cheer one another on and to be in one another's corner. Think about how that would change and how things would be different. It would change everything because everyone wants to be celebrated. It reminds me of that movie, great movie, Wonder. We watched a couple of months ago uh, with my family. And uh, Augie, I think it is. Remember, he has a severe facial deformity and he goes to school for the first time and he's getting all these really cruel looks and people are being very mean to him. And then by the end of the movie, he gets a medal and he has this great line. You remember? He said, I think it ought to be a rule that everyone in the world gets a standing ovation at least once in their life. Don't you agree? 
We want to be a place at Faith Church where we celebrate the goodness of God and we celebrate one another. That's the kind of place we want to be. Thirdly, and finally, we want to be a place of healing. Look at verse 13. We're going to just walk through these verses. How did Jesus and Levi get connected? You think about that question. How did Jesus end up at this dinner party in the first place? Well, Jesus evidently liked long walks on the beach. (laughs) And so he's walking down the shoreline, and he sees Levi, who's in the middle of his hated calling. He's in the tax booth. And he calls Levi to follow him, and Levi drops everything and follows Jesus. And the very next scene is a dinner party. And here's the question, where did all these tax collectors and sinners come from? Levi. Levi invited them. He could not invite them to come and spend time with a man who had changed and transformed his life. We want to be a place, friends, that is so compelled by Jesus and what he has done for us that we can't help but invite our friends. That you can't help but invite your neighbors and your co-workers and the people in your school. Not in a way that's obnoxious, but in a way that's sensitive and compelling. We want everyone to hear and come and meet this Jesus who has healed us and changed our life. We want to be a place where comers are bringers. Verse 16. There's someone else at this party. And I don't know whether they were on the inside and had their arms crossed in the corner like looking down at all these filthy sinners or if they were on the outside of the party, but the Pharisees are obviously there somewhere. And they're not happy about it. Notice what they say. Why in the world is Jesus eating with these people? And let me try to explain why they're so confused by this. Jesus is claiming to be God in the flesh He's holy, and in their minds, if he is who he says he is, then he should not be eating with sinners. The Pharisees, their primary, one of their primary duties was to create all these laws to keep themselves holy. And that's why if you read the Gospels, lots of their laws had to do with avoiding unclean things. And specifically, one of their laws stated that if a non-Pharisee, you couldn't eat with a Pharisee, a Pharisee couldn't eat with a non-Pharisee. Because if you ate with a non-Pharisee who had broken one of the rules, then you would become contaminated and unclean simply by just sitting down and eating with them. That's why they don't like what Jesus is doing here. But what I want us to see is notice the Pharisees' attempts for holiness made people hate them. The Pharisees' attempts for holiness made, uh, actually kept them away from people. Jesus, was he concerned for holiness? Absolutely. He was concerned for holiness, but his concern for holiness led him in a different direction. It actually led him towards sick people. Towards sinful people, not away from them. Why? Because Jesus knew that his holiness was the thing that was going to make them holy. And so that's amazing. Think about whatever it is that you're struggling with this morning. Jesus wants to move right to the center of your heart and life. And through his holiness, he wants to make you holy. And that ought to be our paradigm. 
when we think about the world, we want to be a people that moves towards the brokenness of the world, not away from the brokenness of the world, so that the love of Jesus might flow through us and out of us so that everything that comes in contact with Jesus as he flows out of us begins to thrive and to flourish. Verse 17. Notice Jesus uses an illustration. And he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Think about a hospital. Are you surprised when you go to a hospital and you see sick people? No. You're not surprised to see someone uh, with, in a wheelchair or someone uh, walking down the hall with an IV. You're not surprised by those things. Why? Because sick people go to the hospital in order to be made healthy. And doctors and nurses will tell you it'd be a lot safer for them not to be around sick people. But they move towards sick people. Why? Because they want to make them well. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I'm the great physician. And I move towards sick and sinful people in order to heal them and make them well. Last thing I want you to see is in actuality, all the guests at this party were sick. Everybody. Everybody needed to be healed by Jesus. The Pharisees were just as lost as the tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees were lost because they were running away from God and breaking all of his rules. But the Pharisees were also lost, but just in a different way. They were lost by keeping all the rules and thinking that that is what was going to save them. But who was in the deepest trouble? At this party. The Pharisees. The Pharisees. The smug know-it-alls. Who were standing uh, on, on the wall. Looking down at everyone else. Were in the biggest trouble. Why? Because the tax collectors and sinners. They knew they were broken. They knew they could not fix themselves. And that's why you see in the Bible. Sinful and broken people flocked to Jesus. He was a magnet for broken people. Because they knew they could never be good enough. And Jesus loved them anyway. That's why the gospel is such good news. And the Pharisees thought they were doing just fine. And they were in denial and blind to their own need. And so they didn't see that they actually needed Jesus. And if we don't see that we need Jesus, then Jesus will never be good news to you. And he'll never make you sing and bring joy and celebration, back to point two, into your life. Jeffrey Lancaster, he was a campus minister at Ole Miss. You've been in the new members class. You've heard the story. But he was a campus minister back in the mid-90s, and he also was a church planter in New Orleans. And when he was planting this church in New Orleans, uh, he tells a story about a time a guy walked in the door, sat down on the second row, looked at the ground the entire service. At one point in the service, he put sunglasses on and then looked down again. Jeffrey's in the back of the church greeting people as they're walking out. Uh, the door, and this guy comes up and introduces himself and says, my name is Jim. This is the first time I've been to church in 35 years and felt any hope. Can we get together and start meeting on a regular basis? That struck up a friendship between Jeffrey and Jim that lasted uh, over a year. During that year, Jim was diagnosed. He had AIDS, and he was dying of cancer, and he's laying on his deathbed, and Jeffrey is there holding his hand. And Jim looks at Jeffrey and says, I've been condemned. I've been stepped on my entire life. 
And the first time that I have ever felt true love is when I walk through the doors of your church. That's what we want. That's what we want to be. A place that when people walk into the doors of our church, they say, this is the first time, perhaps, that I have felt true love. How does that happen? That happens when we identify ourselves with Levi. When we realize that that's us, that we would be without hope if it weren't for Jesus' compassion and love for us. And so what do you say we go back to the tax booth this morning? Go back to the tax booth and let's remember Jesus' love and grace and mercy to us when we were dead in our sins. What do you say we go to Jesus' party? Sit with other sinners who are rejoicing because Jesus has come to save them. That's what's going to make us a place of grace. A place of grace. That's the kind of church we want to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you moved towards us when we were dead in our sins. I pray and ask you to forgive us for forgetting um, that while we were in the tax booth, so to speak, that you moved towards us and saved us. Lord, I ask that you would make this a place of grace a place where people would feel welcomed and loved. Lord, a place where instead of being quick to judge, that we would be quick to say, let's go to lunch. I want to hear your story. I pray that this would be a place where we celebrate your goodness to us and to the world through Jesus and a place where people feel appreciated for who they are and how you have made them. Lord, in order for this to happen, this will take a deep work of your spirit. This is not natural for us. And so come and do what is not natural. Come and do what we can't do through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.